When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Oh man, this was the hardest interview I have ever done. This episode, I am speaking with the one and only Jamie McPherson. Now, I've got to say, it wasn't the hardest of interviews I've ever done because of my guest Jamie. Uh, completely the opposite, in fact. <laughs> it was because Jamie was in a far-off land, and he's in the middle of filming right now. And, you know, I've been trying to track Jamie down for so long. There's so many people who wanted to hear an interview with Jamie. I've been trying to get hold of him for a long time. Finally got to a place where I could speak with him in the middle of his filming schedule. And he was using his laptop with his phone as a uh, as a, um, a dongle, you know, using a hotspot. And because of that, he had pretty bad reception. And so the whole interview, although we started off where I could see and hear him, within a very few, within something like four minutes of the beginning of the interview, his... Uh, his audio starts cutting out, and I'm all I'm hearing is every other word. It's one of those kind of uh, 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 kind of things, and so I can't hear what Jamie's saying as an answer to the questions I'm asking him. And so, the problem with that is obviously it's really hard to have a great conversation when you can't actually hear what the other person is saying back to you. But we persevered. And I had a bunch of questions and I thought, you know what? It's so hard to track Jamie down. I'm going to keep going. And so I kept going. And then his video went out. And now it's a blank screen with every other word coming through, which made it so unbelievably hard that, uh, that basically by around the 40 minute mark, I had to call it quits because I didn't feel it was doing this episode justice and Jamie justice. And, you know, we, we just couldn't, it wasn't a spontaneous uh, conversation. It ended up me just throwing questions at him, him answering and me hoping that at the end of it, I was going to be able to download his video and his audio, which did happen. And this is a great interview. I mean, this guy is, <laughs> well, what hasn't this guy filmed on? I mean, Planet Earth 1, Planet Earth 2, Frozen Planet, Human Planet, Life, Life of Mammals, Ice Age Giants, Disney's Polar Bear, Penguins, Bears, Blue, The Hunt, and of course, Our Planet, and the list goes on. This is uh, an incredible interview. We're going to do another one because this does not do it justice. But I did get him. I did track him down. And we did manage to get this interview in the bag. So here it is. This podcast is proudly powered by Battleborn Batteries. Let the power of lithium take you on your journeys across the outdoor world. 
Battleborne Batteries is the industry's top choice for lithium-ion batteries. Reliable, safe, and long-lasting, Battleborne makes the sustainable and lightweight drop-in replacement for traditional lead-acid batteries. Are you ready to make the switch to lithium and switch to green energy? If so, all batteries are in stock now, and you can shop today at battlebornbatteries.com. Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for taking the time out to be on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. How are you doing? This, well, it's this morning for you. It's this evening for me. Yeah, no, absolute pleasure. Great to be here. I'm doing really well, thank you. I'm on location in another hotel room. Can't say where, but um, yeah, really good, thank you. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I've got so many questions to ask you that this podcast should only take about four or five hours. So as long as you're prepared for that, <laughs> well, we might have to squeeze it down to an hour, but I got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of questions. So um, there's also quite a bit of a delay. So we'll see how this works. Um, but as I start all of these the same way, Jamie, and that is just trying to get some background on my guests, find out a little bit about you and how you got into the wildlife filmmaking industry. How did it all happen for you? Um, when I started out as an assistant, um, I used to assist when I was at school, I did the odd assisting job, um, so just a camera assisting. And then um, after I did a degree in zoology and psychology, and then after that, I got work experience at the BBC. So I started, I, and during that work experience, I was assisting camera operators. I wanted to get in the camera side and the photo, I wanted to do both sides really. So I did a bit of work as a researcher, and then, um, and then I worked my way up to current position as a camera operator through um, assisting people. So now I'm sort of a serious DOP on the current series I'm working on. That's awesome. So you knew early on exactly what you wanted to do. I mean, you, you knew the path you wanted to take. Yeah, I guess it's, I didn't really know what the work involved, didn't know what the jobs were, what was available. Um, and it was through, I, as I said, at school, I assisted a couple of different camera operators and I liked that style of uh, storytelling, visual storytelling, um, and the way you know, their career path seemed really exciting, really interesting. And then when I started to work in natural history, then you know I wanted to study animals. I've been obsessed with animals since I was a little kid. And so it seemed like the best way to tell stories about animals was through television. Um, and as I said, once I started doing it, I could not do it really. It's so exciting, it's so varied, and so you know you get to travel. You know you being you tell stories. So yeah, I was hooked. Oh, power cut. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything went dark but we've still got internet that's pretty impressive <laughs> i've got a phone it's on my phone that's good and there's dark. a huge delay is it <laughs> oh i see so oh you're just streaming from your phone that's fantastic well we've still got you here <laughs> I mean, oh, that's great okay yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you see, this is the reality of the job. I mean, it's the perfect timing to talk about. Like, this is the reality. Here you are. You're in. Um, as you say, you can't speak about what you're doing, but you're in filming. How often are you on the road? What? What's? Uh, how many months a year are you away? Uh, I try and do uh, six months, 180 days, six months or so a year. But it totally depends. Uh, the last few years, I've probably done close to 200 days filming. Um, and it, it totally varies projects, projects, how much involved. As I say, I've just finished a project where I'm a series DOP, so I'm involved in the filming on location, but also back in the office, so it's been much more of a full-time job. But yeah, I guess about six months of the year seems 
doable. It still it feels like a lot. You're away a lot, but it's sort of manageable. I mean, essentially, it's a part time job when you're doing that because you're working three and a half days a week. So, um, but it feels like a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got most of that. You are breaking up quite a bit, but I'm hoping it's going to upload and give me that. So if there's a bit of a just disjoint between my, my the way I reply to your answers, it's because I'm not getting all of it. But I think we'll be safe at the end. We'll get we'll get it through. So everyone, the listeners will be able to hear. So um, Jamie, so you you basically you know you were at the BBC. You got a chance to do stuff. What was the first thing that you went out and you filmed yourself? Oh, blimey. Uh, I think, well, the first thing I did an assisting job on was uh, for a series called Watch Out. Um, and I assisted a guy called Charlie Hampton James, who I then went on to make several films with. Um, I can't remember the first thing I actually filmed. I, uh, <laughs> I can't remember. It was 25 years ago, so... Um, <laughs> Well, okay, so so when you started filming, obviously, 25 years ago, things were very different, weren't they, right? In terms of technology, I know now you specialize heavily with, you know, the the gimbal gear, the GSSs, shot overs and what have you, um, and, and getting that very buttery, smooth kind of follow filming style. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, because... You know, obviously, technology has just come so unbelievably far. What do you? How do you compare what when you started twenty five years ago? How do you compare that to what you're doing now? Is it completely different, or are you still doing a lot of on the ground stuff on sticks, or is it all technology based now? I mean, technology um, as in gimbal based. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never heard the phrase "buttery smooth" before applied to camera work, which is brilliant. I'm going to use that a lot. Um, uh, I'd say it has changed, but then I sort of it's it's still the same thing. It's it's storytelling, and I always say that it's not about the cameras. I use the most fancy, ridiculous cameras, rigs, helicopters, speedboats, all those toys, which I love doing, and I'm a total petrol head. So for me, it's the best combination of everything. It's storytelling, visual, um, and then you also get to play with cars and build rigs. But it's all just storytelling. It's just a long lens. You know, the gimbal, however fancy it appears, it's a camera with a long lens on it. And you happen to be able to move it. So the most important thing for me, it hasn't changed in that you're just still trying to shoot a sequence. So you're trying to tell a story, um, visual story, and you're trying to piece together a story that works um, on its own. So you have to, you know, so you're trying to do this. I'm doing the same thing I was doing then. Um, I'm just doing it with bigger, dafter bits of kit. Um, so yeah, for me, it's changed in the opportunities of, of what you can use, um, how you can tell the stories. But I try not to get too distracted by the ridiculously fancy kit. And it's not because, you know, I do it with the kits. It allows you to tell a story in a certain way. But, um, yeah, I don't like using kit just for the sake of it, despite what it may appear that I do. No, absolutely. No. And, and I think that's great to hear that because, of course, story is everything. And I think that's where, and obviously this this podcast is, is aimed at aspiring wildlife filmmakers, people who want to get into the industry. And, um, you know, I think so many people miss the fact that it's about the story and it doesn't matter whether you're doing it with an iPhone or you know, a smartphone or a gimbal or whatever it is, it's about the story. And if you don't get the story, then it doesn't matter what it's filmed on. People just don't want to stay and watch it if the story's not fantastic, right? No, I mean, I think gimbals are very, you know, this now you don't, you know, since, you know, series called The Hunt, we started doing the first time people put um, cineflexes onto vehicles and all that sort of, that smoothing style um, but that wasn't because we could. It was because I wanted to show people what it was like to be with a wild dog or a tiger, whatever it was. And it was led by wanting to immerse the viewers in it 
and I think you do see a lot more movement in today's um, style, but it should be led by the story of trying to tell and immerse in the viewers rather than we've got some cool kit, let's show off with it. Much yeah. as I do like showing off, but it's more about... Do you think that... <laughs> yeah well you get a lot of opportunities through all the behind the scenes that are being done now which is fantastic because i prefer those to the actual programs um but you know those things are great because you really get to see what you're playing with do you do you think that we're at a place now with gear that you are we're at like the height of we've seen the biggest change in what's possible with gear or do you think it's just going to keep going and going and going and just more things are going to come out to to play with um, I think at the moment, I mean, you know, I, I, spend, I use a, a GSS currently, basically Cineflex type, long lens, big gimbal. Um, I use that daily. That's what I use. And the technology in that hasn't actually changed. I've got a bit lighter, but it's the same, pretty much the same stabilization. And you can do the same things with it. As the first time I ever used one was 2009, and they've not really changed. They've got lighter and said a bit smaller, but it's the same thing. And you can only tell the same stories with them. Drone tech is moving really quickly. And it's very exciting, but I mean, personally, still, if you want to film behavioral stuff, being in a helicopter with a long lens, looking, you know, being with the animals as they're doing their thing, I still think trumps it currently, but I think that will change. Um, I think people just need to, it's just telling stories in new ways, really, and um, that's what's exciting. And there's a lot of, you know, I've just finished a big VFX series, so that's exciting in a very different way of telling stories. But um, again, it's just storytelling, really, with a camera, so yeah. Hopefully, people are just doing more exciting things and telling more well, exciting you, stories. Was that prehistoric planet? Did no, a different one that I can't talk about. Okay, yeah, I was wondering that. I was going to say because you probably finished that one. That would have been a long time ago yeah. if it was that. But uh, fair enough, fair enough. I understand. Um, so I have to bring up as we're talking about GSSs and and working from helicopters and what have you. The the piece you did with uh, the glacier breaking off an hour planet in uh, yeah. f uh, was it Frozen Worlds or uh, the Frozen episode in our planet and. I, th I can't remember how many days you guys were out there to film. And I think it came down to the last day and the last hour. Was it the last hour of filmmaking? Yeah. It's, everyone always says it was on the last day. This genuinely, which is quite often, it's the first day that stuff happens, but this was the last day. Um, and yeah, we'd been there, Sophie and Matteo, Sophie Lanfier and Matteo Willis had been on the ground for three weeks or so and we arrived late because the helicopter was late and we got there we'd been there for two weeks and we'd seen the odd little event um and it was literally the last night the last bit of light we were playing cards looking at the glacier and then we were kind of going ah. it's like it's changed angle slightly it was very subtle it was just like sure that face was slightly more vertical before it was leaning back so we're like oh shit and then everyone scrambled i jumped in the helicopter with adam chapman the producer and sophie ran down and Mateo, they filmed it from the ground and yeah, it did literally, all of that stuff happened in the last sort of half an hour of light. Because that after yeah, it's, it's 25 daylight, but the light goes off the glacier. And then after that, it's all very dull. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty exciting finish to the shoot. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's an epic behind the scenes. It's just astonishing to see that helicopter... You know, when, when uh, David is talking about it and it's a kilometer long and half a kilometer under the water, and you can't really get any idea of that. You can't really see the scale until you see the helicopter there and you see how small the helicopter is and how unbelievable that must have been to be that close. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess with your face against the, the hood, you're not seeing everything else around you. I know, I think the the pilot was more worried than anyone about being that well, close, I, right? I, yeah, 
I did look up a lot because you're you know you're filming, but you have to when you're filming, even if you're in a helicopter, you're looking down, you've got a long lens, but you still have to look around to work out what's happening. So I did occasionally look up and then swear a lot at how and you know you're surrounded. The as I said, you said. You can't. You can tell the scale when you see the helicopter. The face is a hundred meters tall, so a helicopter's tiny. The bits of ice, because what happens is it doesn't fall in. It falls. It the bottom snaps off, which is five hundred meters deep. So a five hundred meter tall piece of ice comes out of the sea like a mountain, like a decent sized mountain. And if you're in a helicopter flying around it, I mean, John Michelle, the pilot, was amazing. Well, in that none of them died. Um, yeah, I mean, it is just astonishing to be surrounded by that. I've never been in a situation like that that's that exciting. Um, and obviously, you're filming very big bits of ice. One of the shots I really wanted to do was the shot from above where the ice falls away. And it's quite hard. You know, you're in a helicopter and you think a bit's going to go, but you don't know. And we got very lucky that a piece, you know, the size of a, a house, probably bigger, fell away beneath us. And then it disappears into the sea and a few things come up. And then we got that shot, and the next shot we did was I want to do a shot from the face of it falling down, so you follow it down like that. And that piece, when it went down, came up higher than it had started. So if we'd done it the other way around, that would have hit our helicopter and probably made us have a little swim. So you again and get lucky, and we were, you're in a situation which is potentially very dangerous, but very exciting. Um, and yeah, my partner Sophie was filming us from the shoreline, swearing uh, to herself about how close we were. Um, but yeah. That's, really exciting that's, and amazing yeah, story I mean, to tell to show that event yeah i mean to capture that for behind the scenes is is astonishing and, and it looks amazing because as i say seeing the helicopter in the shots was just fantastic so when watching the behind the scenes on that it, it kind of felt like there was one piece coming off and you guys filmed it and it, it it's hard to get an idea of like how you could get everything you know, this thing falling off and a lot of it's in slow-mo, so it's hard to kind of see how long that takes. But I'm sure it's pretty quick. Was it um, Was it hard to kind of work out when that thing's coming down exactly what you wanted? Or did you just, you know, have plenty of time to prepare to know, okay, this is the shot we're after, the helicopter will be here. Was it all planned out, you know, perfectly, meticulously, or was it very much in the moment seeing what the shot was? No, nothing's planned. Um, no, our plan was it's going to carve. We're going to go and film it, and then we went and filmed it. So you have to react in the moment. We had no idea how much was going to come off. I mean, it looks the, there were pieces coming off along most of the face. So you've got several, two or three kilometers of ice falling in and bits coming up. So there was a lot of ice moving, but you can't really plan it because you've no idea what's going to happen. So you just have to react, and you have to in the same way you do with you know most of natural history filmmaking is. You've got a vague idea of what you want to do, but in the moment you have to film a sequence of you have to cover that one event with all the shots you need to tell a story. So that's that's all we did with glasses. At least glasses, yeah, you know, it's massive thing. So you just shooting what you see and, and piecing together elements that you find. You know, you look out and you see an exciting thing happening, so you film that, and then you see another thing rising out of the sea, so you film that, and then it all comes together. Um, yeah, in a very exciting way. But you know, there's no. I think I got really. that. <laughs> oh, I got. I, I'm getting every other word, but I, I'm, I'm getting the gist of what you're saying. Yeah, it's in the moment. You've got. You got it in the moment. You've got to. You've got to capture it as it's happening to capture a sequence. And of course, having those other cameras on the shore help you build that sequence up, right? Because, I mean, it's just like having that camera angle and being in yeah. a helicopter. It's like you know, um, it, it must have been really hard just to get around that thing i mean it's astonishing to see you guys going around this iceberg as it's coming up and down anyway i mean it it was uh mind-blowing and i think in it you said it's the most incredible thing you've ever seen let alone filmed it does that still stand is that still the case 
I'd say in terms of a natural event like that, um, yeah, I mean, it is incredible. I mean, for, for like, in terms of, it's not in no wildlife there, but yeah, for something, the scale of it is even now, you can, the only way you can tell out what the scale of it is our helicopter, how small we look. I mean, they are the size of multi-story buildings that are appearing out of the sea. And then, you know, a whole mountain 400 meters tall would come out of the sea and then it'd just crumble and disappear. And it's like something out of, uh, you know, a, a Hollywood feature, you know, a Marvel yeah. event of, of those sorts of proportions. And to be surrounded by it is, yeah, incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it looks amazing. So, um, yeah, kudos to you for, for capturing that and getting it in the last half hour. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So talking about the behind-the-scenes stuff, are you finding now that the behind-the-scenes, I mean, it seems like, like Polar Bear that you worked on just came out and then Bear Witness obviously came out with it. And it's similar with um, Our Planet. Obviously, that was a series, but there's like a one-hour or 45-minute uh, behind-the-scenes. Are you finding now that... It, it's now kind of mandatory to film with these bigger uh, uh, blue chip shows that a behind the scenes show is always going to accompany it. Is that now kind of par of the course? I guess it's been, it has been happening for a long time. They've been the behind the scenes have been a standard um, standard part of the production process, and it's really exciting if your sequences. Often they'll shoot several, and then it's which sequence comes together or which one has the most exciting behind the scenes. So. It's been a standard part of it, and it's always exciting to have your sequence chosen because it helps showcase it and you can show people. And then your friends and family at home can see what you are actually doing, that you're not just sort of, you just appear every few months. And, you know, um, so it's, it's always been there. Um, Our Planet was shot as 10 minutes. Normally, it's a, 10, it's a 50 minute, for the BBC, it's a 50 minute show with a 10 minute making of. And that was always a standard. Um, Netflix with Our Planet, we made 10 minutes and they turned it into a feature. And then Disney is a different story where they have a feature length um, behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, there's, it's always been there. It's always exciting to be a part of it and to show, you know, to sort of have those memories with the crew you're with um, to show off really. So um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And, and I know they've been doing it for a long time. It just seems now that they're those kind of epic you know, feature length ones are becoming more uh, more and more common with these shows. And I know speaking to other people, some people find that really easy to do, that behind the scenes stuff. And other camera people, not so much. <laughs> they don't particularly want to be on camera. Do you find it, I mean, it may, to you, it looks like you're enjoying yourself when you're doing the behind the scenes. Looks like it's not a trouble to you. Are you find it's fun to do that? Or is it an extra workload for you while you're out there? Oh, no, I love it. I mean, I never, I mean, it was one of those things where I never really took it very seriously. And because it's a way of showcasing to your friends and family more than anything what you've actually been doing. My boys love it. I've got two little boys um, and my mum and dad and everyone in it and my partner. They all love seeing those behind the scenes and seeing you do your thing. And yeah, I enjoy I enjoy my job so, and I enjoy that. So if someone wants to you know film me while I'm doing my job, it's all good with me. Um, yeah, I just I just I'm having a great time. Most of the time, it's exciting. It's very dynamic. So showing that is is always good fun. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's always good for everyone to see that. I mean, I, I prefer those because I get to see all the kit that everyone's using, which is always fun. So, what, Jamie, if you had to decide what was the hardest sequence that you've ever shot, um, whether it's animals or not animals, what, what would you say is the hardest sequence that you've ever had to get? Um, again, no, I mean, in terms of, it, there's always a different reason. There's, there's hardship in different ways. It can be that it's a hard to get, like, Walrus was the hard for our planet, that was the hardest logistically because we had to get all the way across to the other side of Russia. Um, and then, you know, 
Wild Dogs for the Hunt was probably that was hard in that no one had ever done it before. So we were we were sort of the first people putting Cineflexes on vehicles, and I was just genuinely worried that it was all going to fall apart and like catch fire, fall off, and I'd destroy you know Silverback's incredibly expensive camera. Um, I'd say I mean filming tigers again that's tricky in that you just don't see them so the tiger scene for the hunt was incredibly hard because um you just don't see them you don't get to spend much time with them so there is that that sort of that side of it i'd say that was probably the hardest when it's been very low hit rate for anyone previously um and i've had success with the hunt and i've had success with our planet so it's kind of that challenge of of if you can't even see the animal then obviously it makes it very difficult to film it um, so that was probably tricky, but I mean, I'm always very, I'm eternally optimistic that it's going to happen. You just have to be there, um, put the time in and, um, hopefully when it does happen, you don't mess it up. <laughs> so I'd say so far I've been pretty lucky. So I couldn't say anything specifically that's been the hardest. I think sometimes it's, it's the conditions. So we filmed the wild dog sequence for our planet. Um, and we only had a few, we didn't have very many days to do it for, for various reasons. So you know, sometimes you get to locations. So the location for our for the wild dogs was three and a half hours from camp. We couldn't move camp, so each day we had to drive three and a half hours. So you have to get up at three in the morning, drive three hours, get to the dogs, spend the whole day with the dogs, and then leave them at sunset, and then drive three and a half hours back. So that was incredibly challenging in just the time spent. You had to spend all day with them, and then you have you getting four hours sleep at night. Um, so then, eat, but so that's that, and then we we were very lucky with the with the sequence we got. Well, lucky we put the time in, and it all played out in front of us. Um, so those, there's always a different sort of element of what makes it tricky and what's what makes it more of a challenge in a yeah, way to answer your question. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm hoping I'm getting this because it is it's such a bad. I mean, I think we're gonna, as I say, I think we're gonna have your answers nicely at the end. I'm not hearing you so well, unfortunately. So I'm getting the gist of what you're saying, but I've got a bunch of questions here. So there might be a bit of a disconnect because I'm not hearing it all. But um, the wild dogs I did hear was probably the worst, but you also mentioned the walrus. And I mean, the walrus scene, I, I, you know, is just mind blowing. That, that scene is so unbelievably heart wrenching to watch. I mean, first of all, seeing all of those walruses on that island just surrounding you guys in a cabin is surreal in itself. Um, and then the fact that you you know you're kind of trapped in that uh, behind the scenes you're showing yourself like you know nailing the cabin up so they don't break through in the night did you in the morning did they automatically move away from the cabin or was it that you guys were opened up and they just moved away from you as you walked out because you you ended up with a bit of a clearing there that you could work from didn't you um yeah they so they did literally turn up overnight and we hadn't as they when they filled the beach we didn't expect that many to turn up all in one go and as, as you can see in the making of, they turned up and they surround the cabin. They're against, they're all leaning, every wall of the cabin has got two walrus deep leaning against it. So the bits we barricaded was because they were getting into like a store room at the back. Um, and we didn't want them getting in there because they would have trashed the place. So we then had to board that section up. We never thought there'd be so many that they would fill that space up. Um, no, we had to stay inside. We were pretty much inside the cabin for a couple of days because we couldn't, if you open the door, they would literally by the door. So they move away very slightly, but we couldn't just go outside because they could potentially stampede and move away so we had to wait for them naturally to move away and avoid the area where they could see us and they could see us looking at the door occasionally they could obviously smell us so they moved away very slightly so we had like a 10 foot gap on one side of the cabin where there was it was trickier for the walrus to get to but we couldn't just move them away because you risk stampeding and then they'd, they'd squash each other 
Yeah, and they're obviously huge animals. I mean, again, it's astonishing scene. But then obviously the scene that, um, you know, which is the heart-wrenching stuff of them climbing up those mountains and dropping off the, the cliffside is is just hard to watch, you know, every time. I, I can only imagine what it was like for you actually filming that stuff. I know there's part... I've filmed things before where you are, you know, you're connected with the work that you're doing and you film it because that's what you're there for. But at the same time, part of you is watching what's happening and it's just, you know, a terrible feeling to to witness that. Were there any discussions at any time about not showing that footage in the final show? No. No, we didn't. I mean, it's, that's the whole point. We went there to show this horrendous situation that is happening and it is a direct result of climate change. Um, so we never knew that we would see them on the cliffs. The only footage there was of them falling, there was, there was sort of tum- waters tumbling off lower cliffs, almost like grass verges. Um, so we had no idea the extent of it and how big a haul out. The, be- the haul out on the beach was 100, over 100,000 animals and they only think there's 100,000 animals in the whole world population. So there's a chance we had almost the entire population on that beach with wow. us. Um, and they shouldn't be there. They should be on sea ice. But the sea ice has retreated so far north they can't go to the sea ice anymore, so they have to come to land. Um, so, no, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a horrendous thing to see and to be there to witness it. And, you know, you're surrounded by hundreds of dead walls that have come off the cliffs. Um, but, no, there was no doubt. Sophie Lamphere, the producer, that was her story. She found the story. She she pushed and got us there and did all the work. To You know, it was two years or so of work to get us in those positions. And we had to show people what's happening and that's the truth that is that is a direct result of of sea ice disappearing yeah um so no it's very important to show it and we there's no way we would have avoided it and that that's that's really good to show that they're going to show that kind of stuff because um you know i filmed a, a show recently with a mule deer and a mule deer being hit by a truck and there was a lot of conversation about it not being shown and it's kind of like you know but you have to show this stuff if you're going to create change or impact in the world in any way, you can't hide that kind of stuff from the general public because, you know, that's that's what it's all about. But, of course, conservation in filmmaking, you know, was almost a dirty word way back a few years ago. It was very hard to get anything very much conservation-related, um, or certainly climate-related, uh, into these shows. But now, obviously, things have changed, and, and it's driving very hard that way. So, But, I mean, that's one of the most graphic scenes I think there is in terms of that kind of situation and climate issues. Um, and it's just, it's it's hard to watch, but incredible to see you guys out there and, and manage to film that. I mean, I, I, I think it's amazing you guys did such an incredible job of the behind the scenes because it is... It's such a hard thing to be out in a remote place like that with the little resources that you had. And then you had polar bears coming down. I think in the, as I remember in the behind the scenes, the biologist has got like a stick. He's got this like little prodding stick to, uh, I think, to keep the polar bears away. Was that all you had to keep the polar bears away or was there something else? Yeah, that's that's He's an amazing field field scientist. Um, in Russia, um, he's still in the walrus and the polar bears, and he helped us get us into that situation. Yeah, he doesn't carry a gun, doesn't he? Literally has a stick with a sharpened end, is his only defense against polar bears. And he's been studying them for 50 odd years or something, so he, you know, he's proof that it does work. Um, and you have to trust him when you're there and a polar bear's approaching you, you're going to poke it with a stick, but um, yeah. 
very exciting. And, and, and as I say, he, he's pr- proof that it does work. So, yeah. It's just incredible. It didn't look like a very long stick. <laughs> it wasn't a very long stick. I'd have got a much longer stick, to be honest. Yeah. We'll be right back. I recently got introduced to Athletic Greens as a way to optimize for better gut health, get more energy, and optimize the immune system. So what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's a lifestyle-friendly brand, which means whether you're eating keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's going to work for you. Contains less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And for every purchase, Athletic Greens is going to donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. In fact, in 2020 alone, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And not only that, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. Again, in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits to support projects protecting old-growth rainforests. That's huge. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy... Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do to get this deal is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now back to the show. Speak, I want to go back to your um, the, the fact that you specialize on the, um, the GSSs and the gimbal type um, uh, filming. How important do you think it is in this day and age for people getting into the industry? If, if people are looking to get in to be a camera person, a DOP, um, cinematographer how important do you think it is for them to specialize rather than being kind of a jack of all trades um i'd say i mean i never really i specialized in long lens was what i wanted to do i thought that was the sort of pinnacle of of the visual storytelling style and the guys i aspire to be like um were all long lens guys i never really did much macro i never did people i just wanted to film long lens you know wildlife sequences so I specialized in that, and then and the GSS is a part of that. So I'd say to people, just find your style, find out what you ex- what's exciting, whether you want to, you know, macro work is heavily directed, and it can be just as rewarding visually and, and as creative, if not more, in some ways. Um, it's just what excites you and what's, what, what visual style you want to bring to it. Um, and if anything, long lens is the hardest thing to bring style to because your subjects are a long way away, and you're trying to capture big behavior that you can't influence in any way 
Um, so that's why I started using the GSS and other gimbals was to try and give a different sense of style. Um, but for me, I always used to shoot when I was just shooting long lens on, on a tripod. You know, I wanted to shoot the same things that my the guys that I'd come up admiring and assisting. In some cases, like Marty Colbert, Mike Richards, Owen Newman, those guys were the the best um, when I started. Um, and so I was trying to aspire to do shots I'd seen them do. So I was trying to copy their shots and redo the same sort of shots. And then I decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore. I was going to find my own style and I wanted to prove that I could do things differently. And that's when I started using the Cineflex on the vehicle and being with the animals. It's still long lens work, but it's just their very different look and different style. Um, so I'd encourage anyone coming in is to find your own style and to, and to sort of work with it and work out what you know, feels like your, your way of telling these stories and your way of using the camera, because you can use it in so many different ways. Um, and not just to copy what other people do. So I say I did it, everyone does it. You, you want to sort of aspire to be like something you've seen on telly. Um, but I think it's more exciting and more rewarding when you find your thing and your style, your voice, as it were, and you go with that. And then that's when it becomes really exciting. Yeah, and um, I mean, your style is magnificent, you know, with everything you do, the the, the shots are just, you know, stunning. And Polar Bear, again, is um, a great example. The Polar Bear stuff you guys got from that little boat that you got, I think you were in a like a little, um, a little aluminum boat coming off the ship and going down with the GSS to film uh, the Polar Bear trying to um trying to take down a seal and then not trying to i mean you've got an amazing shot of the bear coming up behind the seal and taking the seal what were the indicators to you that i mean obviously you were after that shot but what was the indicator to you at that time that that bear was going to come up behind the seal um well i mean yeah so that that particular thing that aquatic stalk technique of bears is only been filmed once before for for the hunt, but it just happens to be that I filmed it for the hunt. Um, and so with, uh, when we went back for the Polar Bear movie, it was like, are we going to redo that? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, we can try, but lots of people have tried. Everyone has tried. Since there were cameras, people have been trying to film that. And we got lucky on the hunt. And then it was, you know, and then so when it came to the Polar Bear movie, obviously that was on our list. But we'd really like to see some hunting and, and, and advance that sequence and tell that story and try and be on the water and be really close and show the... Because bears appear to be big doofuses, um, and they're not. They're really, really acute hunters. But and but to get so you have to get into their head to to show people that they don't just like walk around and jump on stuff. And the aquatic stalk is the most complex version of that because they're in a 3D world and they often they'll dive down and they'll come up and gr- try and grab a seal. Um, and in that particular case of the polar bear movie, we had a bear hunting on the shore. It was looking at beluga, and then it jumped into the water and disappeared. And then, so we were on the big boat, put our little boat in the water, and we set off towards it, which was about a kilometre away. And we, no one knew where the bear was. We couldn't see the bear. The people on the ship with binoculars, they, they lost it in the floating pack ice because a bear in the water is the size of a big white duck because you can only see its head. So it's, it disappears. Um, and we'd seen a seal way, way off um, in the distance. So we was like, well, let's just go to that seal. And if the bear's in here... It might go for the seal. I don't know. I'll just. I would have. I'd. I'd go for that seal if I was the bear. So we drove over in the boat to the bear, to the seal. Literally framed up, press record, no pre-roll, and then the bear came out about thirty seconds later. So it was just sort of. It was. A, it was a combination of lots of things. Very oh, lucky, wow. just picking something and going for it. Um, it was the only seal I could see, so I thought, well, it'd be really annoying if the bear jumps out and eats that seal, and we're not filming it. So that was my thought process. Was. I'm going to film it just in case the bear 
jumps out and eats right. it, and it jumps out and eats it. So you know, all good. Um, very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that's the thing you've got to put yourself in. You you got to you got to think like the animal, right? And of course, experience helps you do that. I mean, learning animal behavior and and getting as much experience as you have. Uh, you know, throughout your career, it's that experience that helps you work those things out and go, yeah, you know, it yeah. would be foolish not to be on that CL at that time. There's a great piece where um, I, I think it's the skipper or the, um, the the captain of the ship shouts out to you guys, get away from the ice because the polar is something like, don't get too close to the ice because the bear's going to come and jump in the boat. And then I think you have to get up like a rod and you're pushing yourself away from the ice. Was that... Was that a real honest fear that, you know, if you're too close to that ice, there's a potential that that bear could come um, along and I just jump in the, the I can't remember the specific bit you're talking about, to be honest. Um, yeah, you're, you're, when you're in those small skiffs, you obviously have to be careful that the, that the bear doesn't jump in. That would be bad. Um, so, yeah, we avoid that all the time anyway. Whether the person shouting it was in, you know, was that, <laughs> that real? I don't know. I can't remember specifically. I'd have to rewatch it. Um, but, yeah, you don't want the bear to get in the boat. So, Jamie, in terms of, um, I mean, you, you've filmed so much stuff. I think I'm talking over you. No, okay, I think you've filmed. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, you've filmed so much epic stuff. Is there, do you have a bucket list of things that you, you want to film that you haven't filmed yet? Or have you got a bucket list of things you've already filmed that species, you just want to film them doing other behavior or in a different place, etc.? Um, yeah, I do. I've always, I mean, I try not to film the same thing again. I've gone bin back <clears throat> to film a couple of things I filmed, but tr generally uh, I avoid going back and, re I don't want to repeat myself and do the same thing. If you think, if I genuinely think I can bring the story on or it's, same species, different habitat. So I filmed tigers in the woods for the hunt. I filmed tigers in the grasslands for our planet. It's two very different styles of, of telling those stories. Um, you know, a huge bucket list for me has been ticked off on the big series I've just finished for Netflix, which you guys can see in about two years' time. Um, there's a lot of things on there that I never thought I'd get a chance to film, put it that way, because <laughs> VFX. Um, and in terms yeah. of real animals, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots. I mean, I love... Big predators. I love. I'd love to film snow leopards. I'd love to film jaguars. Um, I love wolves. I've filmed wolves several times. I've never filmed the wolves on Ellesmere from the ground. And it's kind of it's those things where you've seen a bit of it, but you want to do a bit more, and you think you can really get into the heads. But I genuinely get really whatever I'm filming, I get excited by, it and everyone around me always says, I say it's the best. You know, it's the most exciting thing I've ever done because because you have to find it exciting and get super excited and super into that world to tell that story um, properly and do it justice. So. I get excited, whatever it is, but um, yeah, big stripy, spotty things, jumping on things is always good. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's I mean, it's great to hear you say that because there's so many people who want to get into this industry who think that everything has been filmed right there's so many you, i mean i hear all the time it's like well that's great but hasn't everything been filmed now you know and we, are we just going to go and film the same things and and of course it's just not the case i mean there's you know new species being found every day but not only that you know behavior that's not been seen uh, i mean what would you say to people who are trying to get into this industry who really want to make a mark for themselves but you know, don't know where to start. What what advice would you give them? Because there's a lot of people now. Natural history films are just on such a huge increase now. Yeah. We're seeing so many of them on every platform. 
it's really inspiring a new generation of filmmakers. What what would you say to help? Um, them I'd say it doesn't journey? matter what you film; it's how you film it, and it's, it doesn't matter what story it is; it's how you tell that story. So, you can film your dog in your garden. You can film a blackbird, a squirrel, you know, whatever it is. You can tell an engaging story. It's about storytelling um, and camera techniques and all those things. People get very excited about. We're using this and we're doing that. It's just storytelling. And so I'd say, don't worry about the, don't worry about all the different camera techniques and all those things. It's, it's how do you tell a story? You can tell a story incredibly simply um, and effectively. And so it's that I love telling stories with people. And I spent a long time making films with animals and people, and I love the, their perspective on the wild. Um, so I'd say, just find your voice, as it were, in how you tell those stories and what excites you, and then that will come through in your in your filmmaking, in your storytelling. If you're excited and you're really in that animal's world and you, you really get what it is that makes the animal tick and the challenges it faces in that environment and how you showcase that environment and its life in that environment, then that's that's the thing to do because that's what's going to come across and that's what people are going to find exciting. And I say that can be anything. Um, yeah. Don't worry about the technology. Just Just worry about the story. Yeah, we, we talk about this all the time, just, you know, trying to, I mean, one, using the gear you've got, not trying to wait until you have a red camera or, or whatever else, but just making the most of what's around you is, is such good advice. And I think I pulled that out of what you were saying. Uh, there's a lot of gaps because of the internet connection, but I've lost your video again. So I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to pick the words out of the dark here. <laughs> but um, uh, Jamie, what what is the... the um, the, the what is the the um the the probably the most dangerous situation you've ever been in it was there ever a time you were filming and i don't mean you know because i mean just you know you're out there with dangerous wildlife a lot it was there ever a time that you thought okay this is kind of this is now pushing the limits of what i signed up for was there ever a moment like that yeah it's probably one every few months um yeah, I couldn't count on one, on both hands the number of times that I thought, oh, boy, <laughs> right. this is it. I'm going to be in a health and safety video of what went wrong. What decisions did Jamie, that idiot, make that have led him to be eaten by a polar bear, fall off a cliff, uh, fall, get washed away, uh, go off Victoria Falls? Um, you name it. Um, it's, it happens. Rhinos, elephants, hippopotamus, crocodiles, polar bears, black bears. You know, I've been bitten by a black bear. I've been charged by several polar bears. Um yeah, I mean, it's a long list that my mum's not very happy with me talking about of times I've nearly died. Um, <laughs> I nearly went off Victoria Falls because we were filming at night and we got in the speedboat and it turned out we didn't have any fuel. So we went into the main flow about 30 metres from the top of the falls and then started going backwards at quite a fast speed. Um, managed to get out of that one. Uh, I mean, filming polar bears for our planet, we're in a tractor vehicle. Following the polar bear, we stopped. We decided we weren't going to go any further because the ice didn't look very good. We drilled the ice to check it was deep enough, and then there was a massive crack, and our vehicle went through the sea ice. Um, we all managed to get out, just literally just get out, and the whole thing went bloop, and then disappeared to the bottom of the sea. Luckily, none of us were in it because that would have been curtains, pretty sure. Um, so, yeah, you kind of, I think when you're pushing these things and you're trying things, and you're in, like you say, you're out in the wild in, in places that are very extreme off and offshore on boats or on sea ice or top of a waterfall or other daft things. So, um, yeah, so it happens all the time. Luckily, it's still here. <laughs> As I keep saying, it's just proof I can't die, which my partner really hates me saying. <laughs> uh, 
that's fantastic that's fantastic jamie i think i i i'm i'm the, the connection is so bad i'm struggling more and more to hear what you're saying yeah and what i don't want to do is miss is miss is try and is try and talk to you because I'm, I'm struggling to have a conversation with you um i Look, uh, thank you so much for your time today because I know you're in the middle of filming and you're in the middle of and we're doing this. What I would love to do is have you back on when you're in a place where your internet is uh, is better and I can actually have a conversation with you rather than me trying to put the put the answer together with the, the words that I'm hearing um, because there's so few of them coming through, sadly um look it's been a pleasure uh let's try and do this again sometime i would love to uh this is going to work well because i'm sure it's going to download the rest of this anyway um but i would really love to catch up with you uh, say when you're when you're back how, how long are you away for i don't know if you can see that um i'm away i'm back uh two weeks time so yeah happy to chat yeah, again no, lost you pleasure um definitely no just... no i can't i've lost your video oh <laughs> Uh, maybe we can piece of paper yeah i got no video yeah, you're it's... welcome and any time written on it um yeah I... yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm back in two weeks time so let's do it again oh gotcha let well let's let's try and do that i mean i would love to do like i mean th this is great i'm going to use this anyway um because i'm sure as this finish i mean what i'll do is i'm going to stop recording so i'm going to say thank you to you now and then i'll stop recording so appreciate it thank you so much for taking the time out of your day Pleasure. and your busy schedule i appreciate it and uh, we'll chat soon yeah yeah cool thanks if you have enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please consider leaving a rating and a comment. And subscribe if you haven't already done so from wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. The ratings really help rank the podcast and get more people to find it. Also, if you know someone who is into wildlife filmmaking, or maybe they're a nature photographer and they're looking to transition and they aren't listening to the podcast currently, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is the best way for me to build my listeners uh, for this podcast. I would very much appreciate it. And also, if you are looking to break into the wildlife filmmaking industry and you're just looking for help, you're looking for answers for burning questions that you have, then please consider looking at my Master Wildlife Filmmaking Mentoring uh, Group and Mentorship Program. You can find that at Jake Willers dot com and just click on the mentoring tab or learn more tab where it says it on just the home page there you can find it very very easily and then lastly if you want to help support this podcast the best way you can do it other than just telling other people about the podcast is to go to our patreon page it's patreon.com forward slash mwfp that's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. And there you can get all sorts of bonus content. We have extracts from podcasts that didn't make it to the, these episodes because they went on so long uh, because I didn't want to stop talking with our guests. So we put the extra content there. There are catch-up conversations with previous guests, finding out what they've been doing since I last spoke to them and so much more of the behind the scenes. Please consider taking a look. That is the best. Best way to sponsor this podcast and get more episodes in the future.